0: Well, good morning. It's very good to be with my family again today. Um, it's good to be the church together. There's a, Like Steve said, there's a good crowd of folks here today. Um, and uh, my beloved friends at home online, it's good to be with you. Uh, all of my beloved are here, and I, I'm excited. Um, being the church is not about being in a place. It's about living out the kingdom culture of God. Actually, Jesus did not give us much direction as what it is to look like when we come together as a people. His teaching focused on how it's supposed to feel when we come together. Jesus brought us a a culture of the kingdom of God. Today's message is being redemptive. And that's how the culture of the church should feel. You know, the word... To take something that's lost its value and restore that value again, paying a great payment or, or sacrifice for it. And now this isn't a perfect example, but I want you to think of a coupon or a gift certificate, a little piece of paper that has no value of its own really, very little value. But when you bring it to the one who issued it, it gives great value compared to its worth. Because of the name and the reputation of the company that it's printed on that coupon. The paper has no value. It's the name of that company. We are like that paper. We are made of dust. But the Father's name or image is on us. And so we can all be redeemed at great value. Every one of us. And that's a culture... And that's who we want to be as a people here at Crosswinds. See, redemption is one of our cultures. It's creating a grace-filled environment where the broken become whole again and the old becomes new through an atmosphere of forgiveness and hope through Jesus Christ. A kingdom culture by its very nature is redemptive because it, it displays a cultural value of our God, our creator, and his kingdom. We humans are all flawed, but we are all redeemable because our value comes from him, not from us. The problem is, sometimes this church's attitudes can be something that blocks redemption. Our selfishness, sometimes causes us not to want to give value to things that we have deemed valueless, which is usually each other, because loving and adding value to others has a cost. To give value to each other, we must be willing to suffer with and for each other's failings and even face our own. Sadly, the world's, world's culture replaces kingdom culture, often in religious settings. For example, my mother, when her husband left her, the church or the religious institution would not allow her to celebrate communion anymore. She was deemed by the church not to be worthy because she was divorced. In a sense, the message the church was sending that sin, not even her sin, my father had left her because of his lust, Her sin, or his sin, had devalued her so much that she could not be redeemed. Does that make any sense? Since communion is supposed to be a picture of what Jesus did to redeem us from our sin. Beloved, anytime a church blocks someone by their race, by their culture, by their past sins and failings, by their politics, by their sexual attractions, or their economic status from turning to God for redemption, we're not being the church. We're not being who our Father is, redemptive. Why would God's church ever be like that? Maybe because being redemptive is messy. And and, and some of us value neat, tidy little lives over people. I remember 25 years ago sitting in an adult life group as a new believer in a church I was being discipled at just up the road. And my Sunday school teacher, Victor Bolt, said, if we ever rolled up our sleeves and did the work of being the church, Ken, and she said this to the class, it's going to get messy. And in my brain... I knew God had redeemed my mess and I thought, hey, let's get messy. And a a new redemptive culture had been born in my heart. But what I've learned is not everybody in the church has that same culture. I found a few, though, who are willing to pay the price to redeem others with me and get messy. Thankfully, there was a a core of next-gen 30-year-olds, John and Karen Stillman, Pete and Lorienda, and Kathy Schultz. And we rolled up our sleeves, and we got messy. And you know, there are times it was costly. But we have seen hundreds be redeemed by God, both in that church and eventually here in the Island of Misfit Toys, Crosswinds. And I'm excited this morning because one of our next gens, Jason Magathas, a young man with the right culture in his heart, who had the joy of discipling, has the opportunity to preach in that church this morning where I started, where that culture was born in me. Because two years ago, Jason was lost and searching for his value again and found redemption in Jesus Christ here at once. And today he has the opportunity to bring that culture of redemption back to them. See, Crosswinds has always tried and always strived to keep that redemptive culture alive by building on a foundation of the gospel of Jesus. If the gospel is not the engine that drives everything we do, we will become a religious institution instead of becoming redemptive. At Crosswinds, We use a simple illustration to keep the DNA of redemption in the forefront of our brains. It's a modern parable called the three circles. You've seen me do it many times. It's a picture that explains God's culture of redemption that is found throughout the whole Bible. When I was in Africa, I was teaching theology to pastors, and every time throughout the Old Testament I taught a passage, I drew out the three circles before because the same pattern is everywhere throughout the Bible. And and see, if you don't understand the gospel, you will find religion, not redemption. So I'm going to go through it again. God, as our creator, had a perfect design to love us. Our theology starts on God's love. The Bible says, before the foundation of the world, His Son set in motion a plan to redeem us by His love. His design was restoration. Before He created us, He knew we would need to be redeemed. Here's why. We all depart from him. Lost. We lose track of our sense of value. We lose him. And we go searching and we try to find that value somewhere else. And that departure is called sin. And sin distorts our thinking about our value and makes us continue to depart further and further from him. And we all end up in a place of brokenness that, that shatters our, our value. Those squiggly lines in the center, that squiggly line is like a broken egg. We have broken marriages, broken families, broken health, broken relationships with each other. All the pain and suffering we see is a result of us devaluing ourselves and others in our sin. Now, none of us like to feel broken. But brokenness is also Part of His design. He planned it from before the beginning because our brokenness can, if we pay attention to it, point us back to where we can find our true value again. The problem of is that most of us continue to run to created things of this world to find our value. We can run for riches. That's the squiggly line's going up. We can run for fame. We can try to find value in being sexy or feeling sexy. That's what I do. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we we can try to medicate our the pain of our brokenness with sex. We can sometimes fix brokenness with self-improvement. We can try to find our value in our careers and we can try to find our value in religion. We can try to find it in self-improvement. We can try to find it and medicate our our brokenness in entertainment and social media and pornography or drugs but the squiggly lines no matter what they all have the same problem the same results they all lead us further and further from what gives us value god deeper into brokenness and with each compromise we make we get more and more lost and the bible says there's a way that seems right to a man but in the end it leads to death it, it, it seems right but redemption can't be found in even good things like religious activity marriage children love family because we can only be redeemed by the one who gave us value in the first place our father god the the path of redemption is found in his gospel the the plan the father and the son put together before the world was even formed that Jesus, God's Son, would come and live like one of us. And, and, and while he had human form, while he was made like dust, like one of us, Jesus never lost his value coming to this earth. And he always restored the value of others. He healed people, he healed their physical, their mental, and their spiritual brokenness. But the reality is, most did not value him. Instead, those trying to find their value in religion and politics and other things, put him on a cross to die. And he died like any ordinary man. But because he had the full value of God without sin and bore the name and the authority of our Redeemer God, his life paid the total cost of all of humanity's sin, thereby redeeming us all. After three days, dead in a borrowed tomb, God redeemed that coupon, that fleshly body, Jesus, for us. He walked out of the tomb. Three days later, as proof of purchase, that we have been purchased. He was alive again, and that showed the world that this flesh made of dust could be redeemed God's love for us, proving once and for all, God makes beautiful things out of dust. That by His redemption, He makes beautiful things out of us. To be redeemed, we just need to turn and believe in the value God has placed in us through Jesus Christ. And then let Him lead us to recover. And pursue our value again in God's design for our lives. And then as his redeemed church, as his sons and daughters, we are are the ones who bear his name and we are sent back out into a broken world to live in a kingdom culture to redeem the value of others. This is just a simple picture of the message of the entirety of God's word. It's the central theme of all of it. Man loses his value. God allows him to fall into brokenness. God sends a prophet or a teacher to remind us of our value and and help us come back to restore our value with God. And those who return to him find their redemption again. For the rest of my time. I want to share with you a parable Jesus told us. Because Jesus didn't tell us how to be the church, like all the, you know, how to have sound equipment, how to do this. He told us about the culture and then stories, how to be redemptive, the nature of the kingdom culture. So I want you to open your Bible or your app to Luke chapter 15. And this is a familiar story. I've preached this so many times, but I'm going to preach it differently today. And I want you to look at it differently because you've probably heard it before. Now, now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him to hear. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Here, Jesus is trying to, to bring kingdom culture to two different cultures of people. The tax collectors and the sinners were the people that everybody knew had issues. Their society saw them as the broken people who had lost all their value, especially tax collectors. They are mentioned first because they were the worst now we don't like tax collectors but in the first century they were hated by religious people because they were ethnic jews who betrayed their own people working with the occupying roman government to extort their own people now the other culture jesus was talking to were the pharisees extremely religious and pious jews who lived separate from the riffraff of the world because they were so holy and they thought their value or redemption came from their superior knowledge about God and their superior morality compared to everybody else. But moral discipline and knowledge are just squiggly lines because God's word teaches our redemption is found in God's value for us alone. And these religious people saw nothing redeemable about what Jesus was doing because he was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and they thought those sinners and tax collectors devalued him. You know, having lunch with someone with a different worldview was too big a cost for a Pharisee. Pharisees did not have a culture of redemption, although they claimed to be God's people. So, a, a, a religious culture is not necessarily a redemptive culture. But Jesus came to bring his kingdom culture to both. So he's breaking bread and hanging out with both. Do you see that? Culture is often caught, not taught. We had a breakfast over at Jason's yesterday, and there were some non believers there, and they were fascinated by us having fun together. The culture was being taught. The way you influence culture is by demonstrating it and living it with people. And that is what Jesus did to teach us the kingdom culture to be redemptive. And the Pharisees are actually grumbling against God about God's redemptive nature because Jesus is being kind to sinners. And so Jesus tells them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus tells a story, actually three stories in a row that we're going to cover, to both groups. Who are not redemptive towards one another. To teach them true kingdom culture. And what it looks like. The first thing I see about being redemptive is Jesus is showing the value of the individual. Our world tends to be more concerned with the crowd. We tend to give more value or redeem things that the crowd flocks to. The Pharisees felt more redeemed because they were a crowd, a group of like-minded Pharisees, separatists. Labels like sinners and tax collectors could be used to devalue other groups in their minds without looking at individual needs. Redemptive culture cares about the needs of the individual. In the story, the man leaves a crowd of 99 sheep to find the one lost sheep. He does that because he extremely values the one. The needs of the lost and the broken are his first priority. And he is willing to wit, risk and go search for the one lost sheep, even though that sheep foolishly walked off and departed from his care. Now, when the lost, exhausted sheep is found, that sheep is not rebuked or shamed. Instead, the man burdens himself, putting the sheep on his shoulder and caring for the sheep. And then the man celebrates, redeeming it, He says, this is my sheep. He gives value back to the sheep. And then he tells his friends, celebrating and valuing that sheep in community. The man is encouraging a culture of celebration from others for what is really valuable, restoring the value of something that has been lost. Instead of devaluing something or somebody we have seen that has lost some value like a foolish sheep that is departed, which was the Pharisees' attitude. Then Jesus edifies his father's value. And he says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Now think back to his audience, Pharisees. They, are redeemed. they think they are the redeemed ones. But who is Jesus saying the Father is celebrating as redeemed? The one he has redeemed, the lost sheep that has strayed. Not the ones that don't think they have to be redeemed. Then he tells another parable, the parable of the lost coin. Or what woman having ten silver dollars, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and and seek diligent until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says rejoice with me i have found the coin that i have lost just so i tell you there is joy before the angels of god over one sinner who repents now the stakes are just a little different here it's one out of ten which is lost but still the value is placed on redeeming the one lost individual the one is valuable to the woman who She works hard. She can't rest until she finds what is lost. And then when she finds it, she gives it even more value in community by calling her friends together and saying, Hey, let's celebrate. Now, we see in both stories a a redemptive culture. A culture of celebration. You know, as we worship together, We should be celebrating things our God, our God of redemption, has redeemed in our lives. The the places where God has restored value and places where we've lost value. Every week I I ask for God's stories. Those are little testimonials, uh, little God moments of how he's redeemed something in our lives that we've experienced loss in. Beloved, I know they're happening out there. You mention them to me sometimes. But we would have a much more redemptive culture here, honestly, if you would send me texts and emails more often so they could be celebrated even if I tell them here in community. We could all rejoice about them. I want to give you an example of one in my life this week. Something God has redeemed for me. You know, I surrendered my life when I was 28 to Jesus Christ. Before that time, I had an extremely paralyzing fear of dying, of death. And I was raised in a culture of fear by my father and my grandmother who were obsessed by their own fears of death. And amazingly, when I met Jesus, he forgave me, he gave me forgiveness, and he gave me the assurance of everlasting life, and my fear disappeared. I simply trusted that if I died I would be with him and for the last 29 years my heart has had peace. In moments going to Africa and and and, and different things I've had peace but this week something happened that proved that that redemption is has really taken hold. That that my fear of death is removed. Tuesday I had surgery on my sinuses and the the doctor told me it was routine But there was risk because it was near my brain. I don't know how much risk there is. There's not much there. But uh, uh, they, they, they put me under general anesthesia for the procedure. Now, I've always been nervous about anesthesia, but I tried not to think about it. Now, five minutes before I went into the OR, the doctor told me they would also intubate me or put a breathing tube down my throat. In my teens, part of what triggered my fear of death is I had many aunts and uncles die, actually four of them, before I was 18, and, and grandparents, and, and, and I watched many of them die with breathing tubes in place. And as a pastor working in hospice and going to visit people, I have also been at many bedsides of people who died who were intubated. The thought of having one honestly freaked me out. I was afraid I might panic and just pull an IV and start dragging nurses down the hall. You know, um, and as they started to confine me in a blanket because they didn't want these big arms knocking everybody down, I realized my other fear that freaks me out is being confined. It Feels like laying on my back and you know, being confined feels like death, right? Instead of panicking, I simply prayed through Psalm 23, which is something I memorized and often shared with my hospice patients. And there was chaos going on all around me as they prepped me. Things beeping and strapping on and all kinds of stuff. And I just prayed through the psalm. And I got to, he prepares a a table for my enemies and I was out. And it seemed like two seconds later, I woke up, which was really two hours later. And I had a sore throat from the intubation. But the redemptive thing I learned is I know for sure I can have peace even in death. Because I was resigned. I was going to either wake up with Jesus Or with a sore throat. And I was okay with either outcome, honestly. My faith is no longer theoretical or theological. It was proved practical. That's my God moment. To live is Christ and to die is gain. It's not just something I say. His perfect love has cast away my fears. Fear and anxiety is a loss of the value of our life. Peace redeems the value of my life. Verse 10 says this about kingdom culture. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, the verse is not saying that the angels are parting and rejoicing when a sinner who has departed from God in their brokenness has been redeemed. What that is saying is that the angels are witnessing rejoicing. So who's doing the rejoicing? God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity is celebrating before the angels. They're doing a happy dance in heaven over one of us individuals whose value has been restored. Amen? That's what Jesus is saying. Now, the angels are invited to get in their praise and get in on the praise event but the initiator of the joy and the celebration is our Father God. And he adds value to it by celebrating it all in community in the kingdom of heaven, adding more gain to being found. Before I was redeemed, every funeral I went to had wailing and despair by many devoted religious people and then i met jesus and i found true christian culture and for some of you this may sound weird but funerals became fun we celebrated people who now gained more value sense of loss was now gone now i'm okay i'm not suicidal but i've actually felt jealous of brothers and sisters that got to go home before me honestly Because I know the celebration that's coming and that I'm going to be able to rejoice with my father forever in new life with new knees and everything I value being restored. So I want you to tell you, be careful if you ever ask me to do a funeral for you. I often cry when I preach, but at funerals is when God starts to give me jokes. I have to be really careful what I say at funerals. I get really happy. I get really excited because I know somebody's been found in Jesus and I want to celebrate for that person and I want to have fun. But I'm sensitive. I, I, I know people are experiencing loss. Especially those that don't know, don't know that he is a redeemer and that he lives See, I believe with all my heart what Jesus said once at a funeral. I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. And he and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And if we are going to be truly a redemptive culture, we must be sure of that. Amen? Amen. Then we can rejoice in any circumstance, can't we? Beloved, does your face show the world a culture of redemption? Is there a peaceful smile on it? Being redemptive means you can rejoice even in sad times, in stressful times. Too much of religious Christian culture is somber and humorless. I've found really religious people don't have a sense of humor. Being redemptive means being full of joy and laughter because we are to be like our creator who is full of joy and laughter. Now let me get to the third story. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger son, younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, the stake appears to be one out of two are lost. At least that's how the religious will tell it. Often when this story is told, it's titled The Prodigal Son by the religious. Now, Jesus never used the word prodigal to describe this story or one of the sons. That was a title put in later to describe the text, but it's not part of the text. The word prodigal means spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully, or extravagantly. Actually, the Pharisees listening to the story at this point would be thinking that the father, representing God, was the prodigal. In their culture, an inheritance went to the older son after the father died. But this father recklessly gives inheritance to both the younger and older son and the younger son, in their mind, has no birthright to it. Yet the father cares enough about both sons to do the countercultural thing and show equal love to both. And all the Pharisees saw was a rebellious son not playing the rules like they were. And a foolish father. Dad is the prodigal. He's the one who's lost his mind to the Pharisees. Remember, Jesus, though, is teaching us who his father is. That he is the one who redeems things at great cost that have lost their value. For us to have a kingdom culture, it has to be one of extreme generosity with our resources. It it often seems that some churches care more about stewarding their resources to use them wisely for themselves than scandalously investing them with grace like Jesus' did. How can we be a redemptive culture if we only count budgets and backsides in our seats as our measure of success rather than individuals that count to God? I'm thankful to be part of a church that did not make our budget last year but fed more orphans and widows than we ever have. And we preach the gospel more times outside this place than in it. Do you realize that? I'm thankful. I'm thankful for you guys. The redemptive culture that's here. We need to be willing to be like our fathers and sometimes make what seems to be bad investments for our own interests, trusting that if our God's name is on it, He's going to redeem it. Can I get an amen to that? Do you believe that? Redemptive culture is investing in a lot in people that the world sees little value in. The Father would rejoice in us investing in those who have departed from him needing redemption. He would not be happy with Pharisees that would not give them the time of day and grumbled about them. I I bet there were some in Pharisee cultural culture wondering why the Father would even listen to the foolish son's appeal. Beloved, ministry is presence. If we value people, we listen to them, and we give them our time. You know, I I remember recently an orphan in Sierra Leone reminded me of this. One morning I was busy. I I had to study to teach theology to 50 pastors, and this 8- or 10-year-old boy came up to me and just wanted to snuggle under my arm. And at first I'm thinking, I'm busy, I have a a crowd to teach. But I didn't say a word, and I just held that boy for ten minutes. Under my arm. Sometimes you teach better theology by not speaking. The best redemptive work is not what I do up here. It's when we live as redemptive people. That boy had lost a father. And for a moment, he needed to know he was valued and loved in this world. Friends, that's our father's redemption. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs, and he was longing to uh, be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. A religious scribe in history figured the story was about a reckless son with issues. But really, all this paragraph is telling us is about a boy who had departed from his father thinking he could find his own redemption in broken places in his pleasure, and he squandered the precious gift of life his father had given him. And he got lost. And he ended up broken and he ended up alone. And he tries to fix himself. And he, and he gets a job to try to redeem himself. And that, that, that does not work because there's a famine in the land. And, a, and he hires himself out to a foreign, foreigner. And um, that has no value to the culture, the Pharisee culture he has lived in. But he's trying, and the Pharisees would be horrified that he's working for an unclean Gentile, and now he's feeding unclean animals. This is nothing that could be redeemable in this story, according to a Pharisee. This kid is getting what he deserves in the end, according to a Pharisee. Friends, do you ever think like that? They're just getting what they deserve? Do you ever think like that of those who are lost in sin and brokenness? We can't be the church. We can't be redemptive and and think like that. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish, perish here with hunger. I will arise and... Go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I, before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And, and he arose, and, and, and he came to his father. And honestly, even to the boy, his situation probably seemed unredeemable. He is feeling worthless. He's feeling broken. He's afraid, and he's hungry. And in that broken place God designed, he, he remembered something text says he came to himself he remembered there was something that gave him value his father he himself had come up empty but he remembered he had a good father at this point though he's thinking like a pharisee He, he 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 knew he had treated his father shamefully basically saying dad you're dead to me just give me what's mine i don't need you And yet, even when he treated his dad shamefully, his father kindly gave him resources and let him go. His dad did not try to control him or or, or shame him. With reckless love, he, he let the boy go without controlling him or shaming him. Friends, being redemptive is sometimes letting people go without control to make their own choices and learn from their brokenness and not let our fears control or shame them. Father loved him enough to let him depart from his presence and experience brokenness that he could come to himself and find his value through brokenness. Friends, this takes really deep love and faith in your son or daughter. And that gave that son value ultimately. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran up and he kissed him. See, the faith of the father. He had faith in his son's return. He is watching. He is waiting. He is faithfully expecting his son's return. Sometimes I hear people say, I am done with that person. We can let people go. We can have and we should have boundaries to keep ourselves safe from unsafe people. But if we are ever going to be redemptive as a people, we can never say we're done with somebody. We always need to be hoping and praying for them. Long-suffering or patience is often the high price we need to pay to be a redemptive people. For a moment, think about this scene from the perspective of a Pharisee. This father runs to his son. Now, now, Jewish men, adult men, did not run at this time. It was not considered dignified or proper. They would have had to bare their knees and run like a child, and it was immodest. To To, to be redemptive sometimes means we look foolish as fathers, or, or mothers, or, 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 or church members that were caring for us. We look foolish by a world who judges us. Now, I also remember where the kid was working. With unclean animals. And yet the father hugs him and starts kissing him all over with the pig juice all over the kid. He had no concern for his own dignity or what, what others might think. He was willing to defile himself and get messy because of that's what it takes to be redemptive. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son because this boy is thinking religiously. He has rehearsed this perfect confession and testimony on the journey home. And he denounces his own value before his father because of his sin and his shame. But daddy's not not having it at all. Because it's time to redeem with extravagant cost. The father says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's eat and let's celebrate. For this is my son who was dead and he is alive again and he was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Friends, it was instant, full restoration. The boy doesn't earn his way back. Sometimes church culture miscommunicates repentance as stop sinning, get your act together, and then come back. Repentance means. Turn. That's all it means. Repentance happened when the boy came to himself and headed home, trusting in his father's goodness. Beloved, being redemptive is not cleaning people up and getting them to church acting like you. It's getting them headed back to the father in their mess to be redeemed by his love. It's instant. Quickly, bring the best robe. Which is whose? The father's robe. The kid had no time to clean up from his pig juice and shame. He's covered with it. But now he is covered with the best of the father. Put a ring on his finger, which signifies instant adoption to, into the family. Full rights of a son restored. He's no servant who has to earn his rights to be there and be valued. He is valued because he is a son, period. He is loved because he is loved, period. Again, like the other two stories, the lost one is celebrated with joy in community in the Father's presence. Begin. In the beginning, I I said, this appears to be a story of one lost of two sons. But it's not. There's a twist in this final parable. Both. Of the father's sons have departed and got lost. Now his older son was in the field and he came and he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. The older son has not been with the father either. He, He has departed too, hasn't he? He's been away doing some of his own squiggly line things, things like that seem kind of good to a Pharisee, like religion, self-improvement, family, work, good grades, doing church, exercise, moral discipline, eating right, things he was trying to redeem himself in. But the son was actually very distant from the culture. Of his father's heart. Well, it could seem to see that being out in the field meant he was a good son, working in his father's field. Actually, it was his own field, wasn't it? The father gave him already his inheritance. He was working his own interests, not his daddy's interests. The son had no idea what was going on in daddy's house. He had to ask a servant. And when the servant gave the reason for the celebration, his lost brother's return and restoration. The brother does not come to himself and, and celebrate in his father's goodness. He continues to depart and blow off the party. Verse 28 says, But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and and and.'" I never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed um, the fatted calf for him. The other brother did not celebrate the nature of the father's goodness. Instead, he's bitter. He's resentful because he saw no value his brother he's too focused on his own value he's too focused on his own squiggly lines those squiggly little lines this word entreat you might think that the father was begging but actually it means to console to go stand with and console the father sees that this son is trapped maybe even more trapped and miserable in his sin his pride his his bitterness his own desires are trapping him, and he tries to come and free him. He has lost the value of his own brother. And instead of trying to be redemptive, he devalues his brother further, not even claiming him as his brother. But this son of yours, he then even exaggerates about his sin. Jesus only said the younger son squandered the property with reckless living. But now the older brother says, slander. And he slanders his character by saying that the father's wealth was devoured by prostitutes. How could he know what his brother was up to? He wasn't concerned with his brother. Unless he had him tailed by a private investigator... And if so, when that investigator saw this brother was in such a desperate state, did he just not do anything to help his brother? There's no culture of the father in this boy. Or did this prostitute story get added because that was a perversion that existed in his own heart? After all, the brother was angry. Our anger can be an indication of our own sin. You know, every man I've ever helped overcome pornography or lust addiction, the real struggle was anger. Pornography was just a squiggly line medication that they chose as a fix. The sun is raging angry. Interesting, the Greek word root is the word we get the word orgy from. Do, do you see... The blaming words he uses to devalue his own father. You gave me anything. You did nothing for me. But the redemptive father does not take him to task, he does not rebuke him. There we go. Thank you for picking it up for me too, Jeremy. Um, uh, So, he did nothing for me. But the Redemptive Father does not rebuke him. He comes to console him and remind him of his brother's value. He says to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. Son. He calls him son. Reminding the young man, that he is valuable just because he's his son. The boy is angry because he feels a loss. Our sins, our addictions, our lust make us feel loss. And the anger is a clue. You know, if you saw three men drinking at a bar, you would not know who the addict was no matter how much they drank. Do you know how you know which one is the addict? You take away the booze. And the one who angers in who rages in their anger, is the one who is addicted. This son is probably more lost than the so-called prodigal. Even if he is addicted to the things in the world that the world considers good things, like job, family, his own morality, religion, and success. And, and, And the father's gentle reminder... To the son of his brother's value is also there. And his own value is there. He says, all that the father I have is already yours. See, there's no loss. There's, There's nothing in the universe that this good father would not give his sons. Jesus is going to prove that. His father is going to give them The very one who made the stars with his fingertips to redeem both sons. Extreme value given or sacrificed to restore what was lost or broken from sin. It's fitting, verse 32 says, to celebrate and be glad. For this brother was dead and is alive. He is lost and he is found. And here's the truth about the squiggly lines, our our sin which devalues us. The, the Bible says in Ephesians two one through two, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin, when you once walked and followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit which is now at work in the sons of disobedience. When we seek value in created things instead of the Creator, it devalues us. It it takes our life from us. But life is found in the goodness of who our Father is, who redeem us lost sons and daughters. The word for inheritance that the father shared with both sons in the Greek is the word bios, which means life. Literally, the father gave his life or breath to both sons. But at some point, they stopped breathing. And now, it's fitting to celebrate life. To return to the presence of the father and breathe again. Be glad. Fear is gone. You can breathe again All that is mine is yours. To the father, cost does not matter. Everything is his already. But it does to the Pharisee. What is half an inheritance when your father has infinite, eternal, and perpetual wealth? The father is trying to remind the brother there is no loss for him, just more joy that his brother is now breathing again. Jesus is teaching us to be like his father, not to look at loss in anger and in despair. It's not fitting when we have an infinite, abundant life in our father. Being redemptive towards yourself for your own mistakes and and, and towards others for their mistakes is because your father's heart has infinite abundance of love, to make up for any losses. The story ends without us knowing whether the older brother decides to come in. Whether he decides to come in and be like the father and and come celebrate, or, or did he stay in denial of what was devaluing him and everybody around him? Today, is your heart like the father? seeking to be redemptive or like an angry older brother or maybe more like your own earthly father. See, Jesus is telling us who his father is. Our creator. Who God is. He is redemptive. And if we can come celebrate with him, we can too. Come today to yourself. Come be redeemed at great price through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He has paid the price already for you. You lack nothing. He has given you extreme value by his love. And all you need to do is come. Come to the party and celebrate. For it is already yours. And it's already there for others. Just, just come. Just come to the party. Just come right where you're at. Turn, come home to the Father. Let us pray. Father, I thank you. And I praise you for sending us Jesus to tell us these stories. And to share what your family is like. Because sometimes we're raised in families that are not like this and we get lost. We're raised in a culture of a world that teaches us the wrong culture. We get raised in in cultures of churches that devalue us, families that sometimes devalue us, workplaces that devalue us and relationships that devalue us. But, But Lord, we can turn to you and be redeemed. Have our value restored. The value you placed upon us that you dreamed about with your son before the foundations of this earth. That you would pay infinite worth to make us worthy. Worthy to be your sons and daughters and rule the universe with you forever. Oh Lord, if there's anybody here today that needs redemption, may they just come to themselves and realize it's not going to be found in anything created, but it's only going to be found in you. And may they just (laughs) turn... Turn and head home. And I know you will kiss all that pig juice and you'll hug them and you'll put a robe all over them and cover their shame and sin. You'll put a ring on their finger and you'll call them son or daughter. And let them know that they are valued and loved because they are loved by your scandalous prodigal grace. that today. I believe in your goodness. I pray that in Jesus' name.